Welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to our Old Testament overview. Uh, we've gotten to the problem of sin and uh, the creation of God's good world uh, from page one of the Bible. And... Um, Unfortunately, I cannot tell you that the story gets uh, more encouraging in this next section. That <laughs> we're, we're, we're biting off a big chunk of, of text here, Genesis 4 through 11, trying to summarize three stories that all have something in common as uh, we work through this. Yeah, and so last week we introduced sin. Um, well, I guess we didn't introduce it, but Adam and Eve introduced sin um, in the biblical text. And what's really important to see as we go through the narrative of Genesis and really all of the Old Testament a question keeps surfacing that it's not ever really directly asked in the text, but it's really cool to see. And that's, what are we going to do about the sin problem? Uh, sin's entered into the world. It's obviously creating a lot of problems for us, our relationship with God, and our relationship with other people. What are we going to do to fix that? And there's going to be a lot of answers throughout the rest of Scripture. And today we're going to get to narrow in on what I what we think are three specific answers that humanity tries to give to the sin problem. Yeah. So it begins with uh, the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, At the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have been in God's perfect world. They have sinned, and they have been exiled from the garden. And they have children. Apparently, after their exile, uh, they have a child named Cain and then a brother named Abel. Uh, So let's read this, Genesis 4, verses 1 through 7. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Okay, so it was the Lord's will, we saw this in Genesis 2, for man to multiply and fill the earth. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve go on to do here at the beginning of chapter 4. They give birth to Cain, like Stephen said, and Eve is very thankful for that. She says, at least in my translation, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Man-child. Yeah, so it's kind of a funny translation. But, um, yeah, she's obviously saying, I got this because of God. She recognizes that it wasn't anything she did, but it was because of the Lord that she was able to have this baby. Yeah, and Cain sounds like the Hebrew for gotten. And so it's like she's recognizing I've gotten this child by God's help. Exactly. And then she gives birth to his brother, Abel, and uh, he is a keeper of flocks, but Cain is a tiller of the ground. So they have different occupations, if you will. I doubt that's what they were calling them then, but (laughs) this is what they did to to work and to make make food for themselves and, and so forth. Yeah, and so um, there's kind of the question, you know, what what happened with these offerings here? Uh, obviously, there's some things that the biblical text doesn't record specifically, 
Uh, we don't have God coming to them like he came to Adam and Eve and saying, hey, I want you to bring an offering to me. Uh, but apparently there was some kind of instruction given to them. They knew enough to know God wants me to bring an offering. And when you look at the descriptions of the offerings, uh, Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. What he had, he brought an offering. But with Abel, he brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The, the contrast seems to be in the quality of the offering that yes. they give to God. Yeah, not, it doesn't seem to so much to be that one brought fruit and the other brought, or grain or whatever, and the other brought like an actual animal or something right. like that. That didn't seem to be a big deal because we will learn later in the Old Testament where God will specifically tell us what kind of offerings he wants. We know that grain offerings was a thing and that he was totally fine with that. Um, so it's not specifically about what they offered, but it, it kind of goes back to the heart and how they offered it, which is what's echoed over in Hebrews chapter 11 about Abel. Uh, he offered his sacrifice by faith. Right. Um, it's a better sacrifice than Cain. Exactly. And so, but you can kind of see what, what happens in this text that, that Cain gets angry. And my translation says at the end of verse 5 that his countenance falls whenever he sees that God had regard for Abel's offering and not his. Is, is countenance the word? His face is, fell. I yeah. mean, he's scowling. He, he's angry. He's frustrated. And what's interesting about this is that he wants God's approval. That's a good thing to want. But the temptation that Cain is facing now is how can I get God's approval? I want to be in a right relationship with God. But he has a couple of different choices. One is he can do well. The other choice is... He can sin and try to eliminate the competition and think, well, if I'm, if I'm the last man standing, then God has to accept me. I don't know, again, how those thoughts went through his mind. But I love what the Lord says to him in verse 6. Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Mm-hmm. Cain has... a a clear choice before him. God wants Cain to recognize you are in a moment of decision right now, just like your parents were. Your parents had the choice when the serpent in the garden with Eve, there was a choice to listen to what God said or to listen to the lie of the serpent, and they made the wrong choice. All right, new generation, you have the same kind of choice right now. Are you going to choose what's good and be accepted, or will you choose to sin because sends crouching at the door. Again, it's described like an animal again. It's it's going to pounce on you. Yes, I think it's descriptive for a reason. And like Stephen said, this calls our attention back to what happened to Eve. Satan was waiting. My translation here in verse 7 says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Satan would love nothing more for you to just fall right here flat on your face. But you must master it. I think this is an early way of God saying, get a hold of yourself, man. Like, like, you need to be uh, self-controlled. Um, you need to be in the driver's seat here. Don't let sin take a hold of you here. And I mean, this is the choice that all of us face. Are we going to take the, what is forbidden? Are we going to uh, lash out against someone else in in an attempt to make ourselves better? Because those are really the choices we have. Um, and the Lord gives us that choice. Uh, from the beginning of Scripture, we see that God has given man free will. He's given us an opportunity to choose good or to choose evil, and he does not force us to make a decision. But he makes it very clear to Cain, this is your decision to make. And unfortunately, Cain follows in his parents' footsteps. 
and rises up and kills his brother Abel. And like sin often does, maybe Cain thought that there was some promise of like, oh, this is going to be so much better if I can just get rid of Abel. And things just get way, way worse when he gives into the temptation and kills his brother. Uh, we won't read the rest of the chapter, but uh, Cain is also exiled in kind of a different way than his parents were, but is sent away uh, from uh, the ground. And there's a you know kind of curse put on him, and he's like, "Oh, this is too much." And but God protects him to some extent. Um, but things just—it's a downward spiral yes. for Cain's descendants from this point. And that's what we're supposed to see, just in the way Adam and Eve—they were kicked out of the garden and now you see an even further separation for the presence of God when Cain is further removed and so you just see a slowly progressive further and further away from God yeah. um, through the text and I, I just want to make one point here too um, not only did we talk about free will in this section that Cain had the the choice to make you also see God wanting Cain to do the right thing yeah. I think God is saying look you can do well I know you can do this God is not standing there ready to just smack Cain in the mouth. He, he wants him to choose to do the right thing. And that's important to see from the creator early on, that God wants us to choose to do the right thing. He's not just up there just being the judge and that's it. He's also our motivator. He, he's wanting us to, to make the right decision. Yeah. I, I just think verse, verse 7 is great for us uh, to think about the, the temptations that we face and uh, that we have the same choice that Cain did. I think it's also notable toward the end of this chapter, um, one of Cain's descendants, uh, Lamech, uh, is a really bad guy. He's the first guy to take two wives. Um, polygamy is something that was tolerated in the Old Testament, but it's never in a favorable light um, that uh, this is a man uh, who's who's wicked. And he ends up killing uh, a boy, and there's a little like poem about it. It's kind of weird. But um, he says... I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Things get way worse than Cain. Uh, Lamech is like, you thought Cain was bad. Um, and he's kind of taking pride in how bad he is. I'm going to take even more vengeance. And what's interesting to me about this seventy-sevenfold, kind of seventy-seven times, is that this may be the background for what Jesus says when Peter comes to him and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, no, up to 77 times or mm -hmm. 70 times seven, depending on your translation. But I think it may be a play off of what happens here with Lamech, that Lamech is like, I'm going to get 70 times seven vengeance. And Jesus is like, no, I'm here to bring 70 times seven forgiveness and reverses uh, what's this downward spiral of uh, Cain and Abel and the fallout from that. Yeah, so we're already seeing Jesus being the solution to a lot of the problems we That's see right. early in Genesis. All of this points to Jesus. Yeah. So then at the end of chapter 4, we learn that Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And in verse 25, it says, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord or Yahweh. And that really gets into chapter 5, where it yeah. follows the descendants of Adam through Seth and so forth, all the way eventually to Noah. That's right. And this is the good news, is that uh, Seth is going to be the one through whom the Messiah will eventually come. That's exactly right. And so at the end of chapter 5, a um, couple, couple things we want to note in chapter 5. Number one is about a guy named Enoch. Um, in chapter 5, 23, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Really curious not. little passage, yeah. Uh, apparently, 
Enoch was taken up. Um, he, he did not die, he in, die in the classic way that we would, but he and was taken everybody up else God. in this genealogy dies. Exactly. Except for Enoch. He's the one that sticks out, and the book of Hebrews will point out that by faith Enoch was taken up, so it's really cool to see that. Yes. And then we're introduced to Lamech in verse 28, who ends up having a son named Noah. And in chapter 5, 29, uh, after he named Noah, Lamech said, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And so there seems to be this anticipation from Lamech, the father of Noah, that Noah is going to be a savior, a redeemer of sorts. Yes, that's right. And, and so we kind of get this little buildup of like, man, this has gone rough so far. You know, Adam and Eve blew it. Cain really blew it. Lamech is just taking it to the next level. Uh, you know, what what's going to happen here? Can we turn this around? Can we like get rid of the wickedness and like kind of get a reset? Well, the hope for Noah, his name means rest or relief. It's like, let's see if if uh, this happens in the next the next saga. You get into Genesis chapter six, and um, there's a, a curious statement here at the beginning. Uh, Genesis six verse one. When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so... Men are multiplying on the face of the land at the beginning of chapter 6. Daughters are being born to them. And then there is this statement about sons of God in chapter 6, verse 2, and in chapter 6, verse 4. And there's a lot of views on that. You could probably Google and find all kinds of crazy views or, or some legitimate reasoning for who these sons of God are. But um, there seems to be a little bit of evidence that perhaps these are angelic of nature which is kind of cool to see in other places in Scripture. Yeah. It could be a reference to physical descendants of Seth, uh, who are calling on the name of the Lord, um, and they're the sons of God, or more righteous, and then the, the daughters of Cain, uh, the daughters of men who are, are wicked. But I will say, the sons of God is often a reference to angelic beings in other places in the Old Testament, so it would not be out of the question for that to happen. Again, I have a lot of questions about how all that works. Regardless of how you view this text, though, the point is the wickedness on earth is just getting worse, even worse. I mean, you keep thinking, man, like this can't get worse, and it just keeps getting worse. And now everybody is only thinking evil continually except for Noah. Right. Like, okay, like, how, how are we going to do this? And so God's like, okay, it, it's gotten to the point of no return. I'm, I'm wiping the slate clean. I'm starting over. And so he comes to Noah, and... Noah is a righteous man. It says in verse 9, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. Mm -hmm. And so God comes to Noah and tells him what he's going to do. He's like, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. I'm going to save you from this wicked world by washing it away with water. 
And he gives Noah a lot of very specific instructions about how to build this enormous boat for the salvation of himself and of his household. There's only going to be eight people that respond. We find out later in the book of Second Peter that Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. Mm-hmm. And apparently, during the time, we don't know exactly how long it took to build the ark. It may have been like 75 plus years that he's working on this. But he's also trying to call out to that generation and say, please turn back. The, you know, God's going to send a flood. And apparently there was more room in the ark. It wasn't just eight people and the animals, but right. there could have been more people if they'd listened. Well, and mind you, back in chapter 5, we read through that genealogy. Or, sorry, we didn't read through it, but we discussed it. And it's noteworthy. Some people are living like Methuselah, who would have gotten the Guinness World Record. He was 969 <laughs> years old when that's he right. died. And chapter 6-3 says that that's not going to be the case anymore, 120 years. But my point is, if you look at that, there actually would have been a lot of ancestors of Noah alive whenever the flood hit. And if you just Google um, maybe Noah ancestors or something like that who died in the flood, you'll find different charts that are pretty cool to see, to see that there were men in that chapter 5 that died in the flood. Point being, Noah was talking to his own family, and they weren't believing him. And that is just so sad. Um, And so God, like Stephen said, tells him to, to build this ark, um, chapter 6, verse 13, um, or chapter, uh, excuse me, six fourteen. make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with room, shall cover inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, uh, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. And tells him about the window and the door in it. It's going to have three decks. And what really stands out to me is at the very end of chapter 6, verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Yes. Noah did it exactly the way that God said. Big task. No questions asked either. It doesn't seem like. He just did exactly what God told him to do. And if you've ever wondered what this looks like, there's the Ark Encounter, right? I was just uh, talking to I, a guy I yesterday. Go to that. Yeah. From One of the benefits, I'm, I'm actually from Kentucky, now living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, when I meet people from around the, the country and they find out I'm from Kentucky, I'll often get asked, oh, have you been to the Ark Encounter? And uh, the, I had a conversation with a guy just last night about that. But yeah, it, it's, it's an impressive feat that Noah was able to accomplish this, but obviously by the help of the Lord. And so... Noah obeys God, and I think there is an important thing to see. When God says to do something, we do it exactly the way he says. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. We do it as God said. His way is best. Yes. And what we're going to have in these chapters, Genesis 6, 7, 8, um, and chapter 9 as well, is a start of a biblical theme of being saved through water. Um, There's going to be so many stories in the Bible going into the New Testament that where God makes water the dividing line between the old and the new, between wickedness and righteousness, between slavery and freedom. And the flood is kind of the first of these. It's it's where God rescues Noah and his family from the wickedness in the world by washing away the sinful world. And eventually we'll see this uh, carried on in the parting of the Red Sea, Mm -hmm. you know, as the children of Israel come through the waters from slavery into freedom. Uh, as they cross into the, the land of Canaan, the next generation, going from wandering to being in the promised land through the Jordan River. Um, you'll see it in various healings of Naaman in the Old Testament. Uh, you'll see it in some of the healings of Jesus. Go and wash, you know, the blind man in John 9. 
And a lot of it comes back to a point that's made in 1 Peter chapter 3 about baptism. And, it, and he actually ties it right back to Noah and said, just as these eight were brought safely through water, baptism now saves yeah. us. Yeah. And again, it's not the emphasis on the physical water or getting dirt off your body, but it's that that's where God cleanses our conscience. It's that's where we're forgiven of our sins. Yes. And this, it, when you see baptism in this whole biblical picture of salvation where God chooses water, as the dividing line. It just makes sense to see, oh yeah, that's that's where we're saved. That's because that's where Noah was saved and the children of Israel at the Red Sea and, and so many stories that tie into that. So it's just really cool to see these opening chapters of the Bible give us a framework for, for looking at the rest of the Bible and how God works with people. One other thing to see is God is a God that keeps his word. Um, and there's a word that, that comes up in this chapter that we're gonna see other places that's important to see. And we talked about it last week, chapter 618. God said, I will establish my covenant with you, um, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And God promises he's going to bring them about safely. And guess what? That's what God did. That's right. Um, God is, he keeps to his word. And there's also an end of the covenant that we have to keep up as well. And so we will see that with Noah. We will see that with Abraham and all of his descendants, with the even the sign of circumcision. We'll get to that later um, in another episode. And then eventually the covenant that we make with Jesus Christ through, guess what? Baptism. Um, it all kind of ties together. It's super cool to see. Yeah. So so did it work? We, we've eliminated all the wicked people from the earth. You've just got Noah, a righteous man, and his family of eight. Um, did, did he give us rest? Did he give us Noah, you know, his name? Um, and unfortunately, at the end of chapter 9, the answer is a resounding no. Uh, this is an odd story. We won't spend a lot of time on this. But after the flood and the cleansing of the earth, um, sin is still just as much present, even in Noah's family. Uh, There's a strange thing that happens with his son Ham and Noah. Again, hard to tell exactly if it's just kind of a a, a wrong looking at his father and his nakedness, or if there's something more physically sexual about what happens here, either to Noah or perhaps Noah's wife. Um, a lot of, again, a lot of ideas about what exactly happens here, but I think there's two main points that we're supposed to get from this. One is the failure of really the flood to fix the sin problem. Mm-hmm. It, it accomplished what God wanted it to accomplish, but it's telling us, no, it's not just about taking all the wicked people out of the world. Everybody is still choosing to sin. And, you know, Noah gets drunk. This whole thing happens. We're going to see this kind of replay with Lot and his daughters later on in the story, a very similar story. And again, just sad. The sin problem is still here. Um, even after all of these events um, that have changed the world, uh, the sin problem persists. Mm-hmm. Now, the other interesting thing about this account is that Canaan is involved here somehow. And Canaan is cursed. And later, it's going to be the Canaanites that the Israelites kick out of the land um, and overcome them, uh, defeat them to take the promised land. And so there's some backstory here of some of the other nations that Israel will later be involved with in the story. And yeah. so these origin stories become important later on when we see these other nations. But one important thing to see, d- despite man's failures here, God is still such a good God. He, he still is patient with these people. He still blesses them. When they stepped off the ark, um, God told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And um, he is just so gracious to these people despite their imperfections. And that's an important aspect of God to see. And we'll, we'll see it so much more throughout the Old Testament. Right. 
God's still working the promise that uh, he made, even in the curses. You know, the seed of woman is continuing, and so is the seed of the serpent. <laughs> and uh, we see them conflicting over and over again, but uh, the promise is still coming. So, so the kind of the third episode in, in this sequence is the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 10, you have like the multiplication of the people from Noah's descendants spreading out over the face of the earth. And kind of out of that, um, as they're spreading out some, they don't fully spread out to the extent that God wants them to. And they decide, well, okay, maybe the solution to all this is we just get together. Let's pull together and let's pool all of our knowledge and resources and our human wisdom. And let's try to get to heaven ourselves in a sense. Yeah. So let's go ahead and read this. It's only nine verses. Um, for such a big event, it, it's always fascinating to me that it gets such a, a small amount Economy of verses. Economy of words. Yes. So chapter uh, Genesis 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, excuse me. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So... um couple of very interesting things in this story. Um, one, I just think we see the failure of humans to be able to do what they're trying to do. Um, human pride and selfishness gets in the way. It appears that they're really about themselves in verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Um, I do think we're supposed to see this as a, a wicked endeavor. Um, that they come together. Well, maybe the solution is to all pool our resources and and no, that that's not what God wants. He sees their pride and he uses language now to confuse them. And I can't imagine what that moment would have been like, you know, if you're trying to say, pass me that hammer and suddenly you're speaking Chinese or whatever. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, it would have been uh, quite a moment. And so they have to spread out and, and are divided um, into these different people groups. And, and they do spread out uh, over the face of the earth. So now there's even more division. And you're like, oh, man, this is, this is rough. Um, and this is the origin, uh, the Tower of Babel. It's in the land of Shinar. Um, you're going to see this come up a couple of times later, and it's almost always with negative connotations. Uh, Shinar is uh, a place where, where wickedness is mm -hmm. um, in the east. Um, and Babel is going to become the place name for Babylon. Yeah. It was a long time before I realized that. Yeah. And that really becomes kind of like Egypt, uh, a, a place of, of slavery, a place of wickedness, a place where, where evil dwells. Um, and Babylon will be kind of a Bible-wide theme all the way through the book of Revelation. 
of like human pride and self-will, it kind of becomes a symbol for when we try to fix things ourselves without turning to the Lord, God frustrates our plans and spreads us out. Um, that's not the way God wanted them to, to fix this. Yeah, and I, I love the statement in verse 5 that the Lord came down to see the city yeah. and the as, tower. As they went up, up, up. Yeah, I mean, th- think of right now the greatest human accomplishment on the face of our earth right now. Maybe think of the tallest, largest building. I think it's actually in Dubai. Or, you know, th- think about just anything large, massive, pyramids, whatever. God would have to come down. To see that, I mean, that's how much bigger and greater he is than even our largest and best accomplishments, which is kind of God's point here, I think. Like, look, you guys think you're something, you're not, okay? So I'm going to scatter y'all, I'm going to show y'all who's boss, boom, y'all got different languages, scatter. When God says scatter, guess what happens? They scatter. And if we want to back up for a second and kind of look at the episode as a whole, Stephen, what we're getting at is... Man cannot solve the, pro- the problem of sin. We're incapable of it. Yeah. We, in fact, make things worse, it looks like. <laughs> right. And, I mean, you see it in Cain and Abel. Uh, okay, well, Adam and Eve failed, but maybe their descendants will fix it. Maybe if we just keep learning from our mistakes. Well, Cain and Abel make it worse. Well, okay, maybe let's just get rid of all the wicked people and just have the righteous ones. Well, that happened with Noah. That didn't fix the problem. Well, let's all get together and, and, and do it that way, and maybe that will fix it. No, that also makes it worse. And so you get to the end of Genesis 11, and you're just kind of tired. You're like, man, God made this good world, and we have just totally messed things up. How is God going to fix this? How, Out of all the rubble, how is God going to move forward with this story? And it's from the midst of all of this mess that God chooses a man named Abraham. And he's going to begin to fulfill what he told in Genesis chapter 3, that through the seed of the woman, there's going to be someone who comes. And he's going to expand on these promises to Abraham. And we'll talk more about this next episode. That uh, there's going to be hope for all the families of the earth, even though they've been spread out over the face of the earth and they've been at odds with each other and there's all these terrible things happening. Um, there is a blessing coming for all of the nations, and it's going to be through the descendants of this man, Abraham, that God's going to work. And so this is a big kind of shifting point in the book of Genesis where really the rest of the Old Testament is going to start following the story of this man's family, Abraham and his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, who will be called Israel. And a lot of the rest of the Old Testament story is, okay, God's going to have a specific subset of people that he's going to start working with, and we're going to see how that leads us to the story of Jesus through all of this. And if you look in Matthew chapter 1, guess what it starts with? A genealogy that begins with Abraham, works all the way down to a man named Joseph, who, who's married to a woman named Mary. And whenever she becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit, um, what we're told about her is, She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is the solution. And if we we look out into the world now, people are still running to all the wrong things and trying to come together to fix the problem of sin themselves. They might not identify it or or say it like that, but that's exactly what's going on. And maybe, maybe you're someone that's listening that's also trying to run and fix all your problems, your sin problems by yourself. I hope you can look at these stories and understand that you're not going to be able to fix it by yourself. You've got to go to the one and true Redeemer, Jesus Christ, for that problem. Let him fix it. 
That was his whole purpose for coming was to fix our problems and to bear our burdens. Um, in return, we need to submit to him. And so all this is ultimately pointing to Jesus. Uh, in some ways, I want to build up to that at the end of the, the season or something like that, but it's we can't. It's the end of every episode. We, 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 have, we have to talk about it every single episode because it is just so overwhelmingly obvious that Jesus is the solution to all of these problems. And so let's, let's put our trust and hope in him and learn more about him as our Savior. Amen. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, uh, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review if these are helpful to you. Um, We'd love to study with you. We've got online and in-person Bible studies. If you want to reach out to us, 717-585-0949. You can text or call or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. Or for more information and studies, check out capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.